Look at all those heads turning over there. You see that? I can see that out of the side of my eye. I, I turned and looked over there, and a whole bunch of people turned around and looked. Have you ever done that on purpose like I just did? Once there was a drunk who was sitting at a bar, and he had his hands cupped like this. And every now and then he would look around and he would peek in there. And a fellow next to him says, Hey, hey, hey buddy, uh, what do you got in there? And he looked at him with a grin and he said, Guess. He says, I, I don't know, cricket maybe? Nope. Uh, cockroach? Nope. Oh, I give up. Elephant maybe. What color? That's an old, old, old one I know, so I only got a little mild chuckle out of that one. When you're a child, you really delight in telling another child, I know something you don't know. Have you ever done that? You find out something, you know something, you've latched on to some little tidbit of information, you know it, somebody else doesn't know it, and do you ever feel proud? When you're playing a game of cards, a harmful little game of cards, it could be anything like bridge or hearts or whatever, and you are given a terrific hand. You ever notice the facial and the body gestures of people who have a great hand, a really good hand, when it comes time to play that trump card and take the trick? They don't just toss it out there and take the trick. They go, bang, with that card, stick it in there, and they're all swelled up with pride. And it's just a matter of a bunch of pasteboards, and you could get an abysmal hand. You could be sitting there all night and getting an abysmal hand. When you get a good hand, suddenly you are sitting straighter up. You are higher. You are bigger than and better than the person beside you because you have a better hand. Do you suppose when Jesus walked the earth every now and then he walked along with somebody and said, Do you know that the internal combustion engine is coming soon? Wouldn't that have just bombed people's minds? If Jesus Christ had walked along and said, wait till you see an F-15, rotate to the end of the runway and go to 60,000 feet in exactly one minute, and they would say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I know, but you don't. They're coming, believe me. Did Jesus ever do that? Did he ever swell up with pride and tell people something they didn't know? No, not one time. Not one time did Jesus Christ ever do that. Now, a, a little more profound question, did Jesus know in the flesh about F-15s? Did he know about the internal combustion engine? Did he know about telephones and automobiles and radios and television? Did he know about orbital satellites and space shuttles? Did he know how to wire a telephonic switchboard or how to repair a television set? Do you think he did? Do you think he had all that knowledge and information in his mind walking around as a human being, planet Earth, in the first century? No, he did not, did he? There's no way that Jesus Christ would have known, would have learned, or would have had communicated to him from heaven technological or scientific knowledge way beyond his day. Was he intelligent? Well, of course. Was he well-educated? Of course. But in what way? You know, recently I was watching, my wife likes to watch a particular program, and on a rare occasion I'll walk in and catch a little part of it. I've seen just a few minutes of one on a rare occasion. I'm coming home in the afternoon or something. And it's one where they drop these panels down, and then there's a weird-looking bunch of cartoons, and I guess some little ditty or some little puzzle or something by a bunch of pictures. And these people are up there. And there's another one called uh, Jeopardy. And the people have these categories. And they're giving answers just real rapidly, except in this case they're giving a question. The answer is, they say, and or the question is, I guess, the way they put it. And I was listening to one of these people, and I thought, you know, if they'd ever get me on that program, I would look like 
an ignorant dummy. They were asking question after question about the names of the actors on sitcoms, and I had never heard of any of them. The other day when there was a great big flap about pres Vice President Dan Quayle said something about the disintegration of the family and how there was a poor role model from something called Murphy Brown. It wasn't until we went to luncheon the other day with Mr. Dart and some of the rest of them that I found out Murphy Brown was not a man. I didn't have the faintest idea who Murphy Brown was. I'd never heard of him. Her. Never heard of him. Now, if they would ask me questions like that about some of these TV sitcoms, I would look like a dunce because I don't watch them. I don't know who and what they are. I don't know anything about them. Don't know who plays on them. Jesus said, and I quote, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What did he really mean by that? What is truth? You know, just a few years ago, Johnny Cash had a song that had those same lines in it. And once they asked him, why do you dress in black? And even during the Vietnam War, because he was kind of a protester and a little bit on the liberal side, he wore black. I think he still does. And he wrote a song about the man in black and said that he would dress in different colors and all these problems were solved and the world wasn't such a wretched place and people weren't dying and starving to death and disease was not endemic all over the world. But you know, it's a very modern statement that came out of many a collegiate grade classroom years ago, especially during the middle of the Vietnam War when young hippie types were walking around saying, what is truth? I remember doing many a sermon on how the modern concept was truth is relative. Truth is ever changing. What was true then is not true now. And you couldn't even deal with something called an absolute because they denied there was such a thing as an absolute. They even got to philosophizing in college classrooms that just because an object dropped out of your hand will inevitably fall to the floor, every time you do it does not prove that the next time you drop it, it will drop to the floor. And they would tell students that, and students would sit there, and they would swallow that. And that's the answer they need to put down to get a hundred on the, on the uh, test. So they would believe that kind of absolute garbage. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Let, uh, free. Let's turn to Hosea, the fourth chapter in verse 6. God says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Now, how can that apply to the United States of America? Because we do know about the internal combustion engine, and we do know about space shuttles, and direct dial telephonic global communication, and telefax machines, and how to wire switchboards, and how to build F-16, F-15 fighters, triple sonic fighters that can go three times the speed of sound. So we have a vast array of knowledge. As a matter of fact, knowledge is increasing so rapidly that they say any doctor that even began to try to keep up with one branch of medicine with the new things being developed and new drugs and techniques coming out would never be able to perform an operation because he would be spending nothing but time on research and reading and trying to keep up on what is happening and by the time he reads that there'll be something new coming out. So there's new knowledge. It's exploding all the time. But he said, because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you shall be no priest to me, seeing you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. During this past week, how many minor 
everyday mundane decisions did you make that you made through the looking glass of God's truth, of God's Word? Whether you were grocery shopping, whether you were driving as you go down the road, your habits of driving, whether you were living as husband and wife, as spouse, one or the other, as father or mother, whether you were sitting at your desk where you work or out of doors where you work or whatever you do, how many times was God's Word, as David said, a lamp unto your feet that literally influenced a decision you made? Now, how many of you know that no matter what they say about virility, you shouldn't eat raw oysters? Well, all of you do. So basically, the truth guides what you eat, your diet. How many of you know that probably it would look a little bit garish if a man showed up in a red plaid suit with a bright fuchsia plaid necktie? Well, basically you wouldn't do that because it would clash, it would drive other people crazy. How many of us know that probably us men should not go home and then first thing Tuesday seek out a barber and have ourselves a brand new Cherokee Indian haircut? and be bald on both sides with one shock of hair right down the middle. In some cases, we'd be bald all over because we don't have any hair in the middle. We'd best put it on the side. Uh, how, how, how many of us know that we don't really need to come to church next week wearing a black suit with a black beaver hat and little ringlets down to here with high-top shoes look like we got them out of a 1929 Sears and Roebuck catalog that laced all the way to the top? Well, we know that, but I think we take it for granted. Let's think for a moment about the world in which we live. Do you believe George Bush is an intelligent man? I think he is. I believe George Bush is probably as well-educated as any other person uh, in that, in that uh, field of politics, professional politician. I think that his rate of assimilation of knowledge and his retention of knowledge, his ability to be handed a dossier and brief himself on what is happening in given countries when he's taking a trip there, uh, the smorgasbord of information he learned in college and all of the information that is given to him that he can study in a special field, he's probably a, quite an intelligent man. You know, it was said that Jimmy Carter had one of the highest IQs of any president in the history of the country, no matter how the way, the way he talked. Hi. I'm Jimmy Carter. Hi. I'd like to be your president. You know, they used to drive me crazy. Hi. I'm Jimmy Carter. I can't do the teeth the way he did his teeth way out there. But uh, some people's voices don't match their bodies. You know, it's like Mike Tyson. He looks like this gigantic gorilla. Hi, I'm Mike Tyson. I'm a heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> it drives me crazy. Oh, don't get me off on that. Anyway, I do think that George Bush is a very intelligent person. I don't think that Gerald Ford was quite the same, nor do I think that uh, the Vice President Dan Quayle has quite the intellect of, of a George Bush. But I have to give them that they are intelligent people. Let's look at the world in which we live. All of education is based upon the Greek, the pagan philosophers, and the evolutionary concept. You cannot tell me that the educators in Harvard and Princeton and Yale and at all of the great universities in the United States, like all of the state universities, University of Ohio, University of Illinois, University of Columbia, University of New York, you can't tell me that these people with doctor's degrees, and there are many of them who are in science, that are actually also writing papers or a part of a think tank who end up being an advisor to a president. Many of them are on the international relations committees, and they actually help form governmental policy. 
And these are brilliant and intelligent people. Now, I told you before, and a lot of us sit here because we take it for granted, doesn't shake you up, doesn't bother you at all, goes off the back of your head or in one ear and out the other like water off a duck's back. I'll stand up here and say the CIA didn't know, the FBI didn't know, the NSC didn't know, the Naval Intelligence didn't know, none of the cabinet knew, the White House didn't know, the Pentagon didn't know, and George Bush didn't know. When the Berlin Wall came down, and when communism absolutely fragmented, and the Warsaw Pact disintegrated, none of them knew. And as a matter of fact, the CIA has been coming under an awful lot of fire lately by a lot of intellectuals in this country that ask themselves, what good is it? Why are we spending all that money when the CIA didn't know? And I tell people, but I knew. Goes off their head like water off a duck's back. Not one little, I don't think the big Sandy S&H journal ever beat a path to my door and said, how come you knew? Isn't that amazing? Think about it. We publish articles. I go on television. I say, I told you so, and I've been telling you so for 39 years. Nobody says a word. Nobody shows up. Hey, this guy said he knew. Isn't that interesting? Everything around us, science, education, politics, happens to be the result of superbly educated, brilliant, intellectual minds. That is not a bunch of dumb dodos out there running the world. George Bush, people in the Pentagon, and the people in the heads of these universities are not stupid people. Yet look at the way they conduct the affairs of the nation. Look at the mess of American health care and welfare and decisions that previous administrations have taken which have locked incumbents into a given format or formula that is absolutely disastrous down the road a few years. And yet they are superbly intelligent people. Evolution is the product of intelligent minds, not the product of stupidity, but something is missing. The political systems of all the world are the product of intelligent minds. What is your opinion today of those philosophers, including if you've ever read him, probably most of you have never read Marx, Karl Marx, who was a German. Probably you never read Vladimir Lenin or Vyacheslav or whatever his name was, but you've never read Lenin. I imagine most of you never read Mein Kampf. Probably most people have never really intelligently informed themselves on communism, on the communist philosophy. Did you know that some people actually said that communism was the type of government that God urged upon people? And the proof of that is in Acts, the second chapter, how all of the people who were there seeing the miracles in Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost, quote, had all things common, and they sold their possessions and put them into a common pool and allowed the apostles to distribute the wealth and had all things common. And they said, there it is, communism because a lot of Americans were so ignorant they thought it meant communism and used to say so instead of the fact that the communal system of collective farms and it went so far in some cases as to be adapted by other governments a lot of you probably don't know that one of the most communist nations in the world in one sense only because of their kibbutzim is the nation of Israel the kibbutzim are collective farms where everyone works for the good of that one unit and even the children, in some cases, were sort of the property of the state. Now, the individual parents, of course, raised them, but there were babysitters and classes and the youngsters were taken care of while the people were working in the farm. There is not one political system you can mention, communism, 
the representative elective form of government, democracy, republicanism, monarchies, oligarchies, juntas, dictatorships, autocracies, limited monarchies that are not the product of superbly intelligent minds. Yet look at the shambles communism has made of Eastern Europe. These brilliant men, these philosophers, these writers who were so revered that they had statues of them all over the country, and they even named some of their biggest cities, Leningrad, meaning Lenintown, Leninton. And they had statues of him standing up there looking intelligent. When communism fell to the ground, so did Lenin's statue. They just toppled it. And suddenly, if you wanted a piece of history, you could buy Lenin's head or buy his arm. And some of the communists thought, well, it's a new, new system. We're going into capitalism now. I like to bid on the head. You know, they were buying the bronze head of Lenin because there aren't going to be any more. Now it's not Leningrad anymore, is it? It's St. Petersburg. Back to Peter the Great. And he probably wasn't any saint anyway. How many of you have read Plato or Socrates or the Anti-Nicene Fathers or Epictetus or Kant? or Freud, or Newton, or James, or Jefferson. Intelligent minds, superbly educated people, fantastic gifts of thought. And not a one of them knew but a tiny fraction of what you know and some of you never got out of high school. Now, you have to think about that and quit taking it for granted. Your Bible says in Revelation 12 and verse 9 that Satan the devil deceives the whole world. Over in John the 8th chapter where Jesus said, You shall know the truth. Let's look at that because it happened in a context of an argument with a lot of very intelligent people who could quote Bible to you, including many of the Psalms, hardly pausing for breath, and never miss a word. The Pharisees. Very educated intelligent men. He was speaking some things, and a lot of them decided, we really believe on him. I, th I think that probably is a prophet there. Verse 30 of John the 8th chapter, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Now, these are the Jews who believed on him. They went along with what Christ said, and they suddenly began to say, well, he's got to be a leader. I, I believe I believe that man. Then said Jesus, to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. In other words, if you live by my word, if you let it guide you, if you not only just believe on it, but you work with it, and you change, and you allow my word to be your modus operandi, you follow it, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now that stung them. And they got all, as we say in East Texas, swolled up. Because when you tell someone that they are not quite as smart as they thought they were, it really does insult their intelligence. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they said, we be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage. They took exception with this idea of being free. Never in bondage to any man. How do you say, you shall be made free? Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the slave, the servant of sin. Well, then, true freedom is not just the fact that we're walking around here in Lake Palestine, free to go, the door has a crash panel on it, and set it down here about 30 miles in a maximum security prison at the town of Palestine, where one of my neighbors at Emerald Bay is a guard. And he tells me there's not a man in there, including all these murderers that ever did what, what the law said he did. 
They put to death these innocent people just all the time, don't they? Our prisons are just absolutely populated by people who never did a thing, according to them. But here you are, you're free. Those people down there, 30 miles away, are in jail. Some of them are seeing the same sunshine we are They're out in the yard right now, maybe flitting a volleyball around. They're sitting there watching an afternoon television. Some of them are in the library, and some of them are in there making license plates. And they're not free. You're free. But, you know, that's not the kind of freedom it's talking about. Whosoever commits sin is the slave of sin. He's a slave in the sense that he is a slave to his appetites, to his human passions, to vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. And the servant abides not in the house forever, but the son abides forever. And if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now that's a kind of freedom that we want to talk about and come to understand. I know you're Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me. These are people who believed on him. My word has no place in you. They didn't listen, didn't allow it to sink down into their consciousness, and didn't really accept it. So there's a difference, isn't there, in believing on and believing. This world believes on Jesus, but they don't believe Jesus. They don't believe what he said. They believe on him. Oh, he's Christ, but they don't believe him, what he said. My dad said that for 50-some years. There's a difference in believing on him and believing him. I speak that which I have seen with my father. You do that which you have seen with your father. And, of course, he's always got a double entendre in what he says, a hidden meaning. They answered and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Christ didn't deal with internal combustion engines and F-16s and telephone switchboards. He dealt with the truth, the lamp unto our feet, the essential information, who and what is God, who and what is man, who and what was or is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, what is the way to salvation, what is the way of right living, that results in getting us everything we could ever dream about wanting, and what is the opposite way that gets us everything we want to avoid with all of our being, nothing but curses and hangovers and night sweats and worries and fears and diseases and bad health and weak hearts and clogged arteries and, and minds that are like an old abandoned junkyard instead of a brilliant clean instrument and a kind of a life that is just a pain to us and everybody around us. The kind of essential truth that Jesus is talking about is the truth of salvation. Can you really say that these people that I talked about are really truly educated when they didn't really know what they were? Now, when you don't know what you are, are you really that smart after all? You don't know what you are? I know exactly what I am. And I mean by that the physical part, the spiritual part. I know exactly about the process of the reproduction of the God family. I know that God is reproducing himself. There's not a Methodist or a Baptist on the face of this earth that knows that. But you know it. There's not a Catholic on the earth by the tens of millions that know that. But you know it. You know that God is reproducing after the God kind. And there are millions of Protestants that don't know that. But you know it. That's the truth. And that makes you free. 
I'll tell you how free that makes you. That makes you so free that you can have, if you consider him that died while we were yet sinners, and you concentrate, that means with central focus on Christ, that you can stare a rifle muzzle in the face as they're about to put you to death. And you can remember what Jesus said, Fear not man who after he has destroyed the body cannot destroy the life, the soul. Fear him who can destroy both in Gehenna fire. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth can free you from the shackles of fear and terror to the point that if someone says, you will either curse God and kiss the Pope's foot, or I will kill you. No, no, you can only kill this human body. You can't kill me. Shoot away. Help yourself. Speed my way to the kingdom of God. In one split second, I'll be in God's kingdom judging you. Pull the trigger. Go ahead. No, you can be absolutely free from fear, from terror. What will people do in life to avoid coming to that place? What, how will they deprave themselves? How quickly will human beings, otherwise cultured, descend below the level of animals to avoid something like that happening to them under a threat of either torture or death? Why, there are plenty of cases on record. The Apostle Paul could not live down what he did to professing real Christians. I don't, shouldn't say professing. In his case, I believe there were real Christians. And he put them on the rack and caused them to blaspheme. And some were martyred, and some perhaps gave in. And he had to live with that for the rest of his life. So the truth will make you free. Verse 40, you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. They accused him of being a bastard. They said, We be not be born of or fornication. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me. Axiomatic. Germ of truth. Absolute, beautiful, pure truth. If God is your Father, you will love me. If God is my Father, I will love you. Vice versa. And we will love each other if God is our Father because we are brothers and sisters. So we don't hate each other. They didn't love Jesus Christ. He said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you can't hear, it doesn't sink into your consciousness. It goes in one ear and out the other. You don't hear my word. You're of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you're going to accomplish. He was a murderer from the beginning, because he got inside of Cain and caused him to kill Abel, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Now that's interesting. There isn't even some admixture there. Now the devil will lead you along with a little bit of pseudo-truth that's near the truth, but Christ insists that he's wholly a liar. No truth in it. Have you ever known people, there was a guy that was a neighbor of my grandmother's, who all around his environment was known as Windy Johnson. His first name I never knew, his real name I never knew. Could have been Harold or Horace or Abner, I don't know. But the whole neighborhood called him Windy because he was an inveterate liar. Everything he said was an exaggeration. When he came by to visit, it was to tell them a whole series of exaggerations. And I have a little book I've been trying to work on. And 
kind of put on the back burner, but a book entitled You Can't Milk Cows and Play the Violin. And it's about my, my Uncle Dwight, who was a first violinist in the Portland Symphony, but had to go to, with his grandmother, with his mother, rather, my grandmother, on this farm. And, uh, you know, when you're working on stiff wang leather in an Oregon winter and out plowing and harrowing and raking hay and shocking hay and plowing behind two horse teams and hitching up horses and milking cows, about six of them at a time, and lugging the can down the lane to get the co-op milk money of about $40 a month or whatever they made, you can't really be a skilled violinist because your fingers tend to get all stiff. Well, Wendy came by one day for a visit and told Dwight about his famous jumping cow. said, oh, yep, I've trained her myself, Dwight. said, that cow, I've sold that cow about six times. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I took her to Portland stock show one time. You see my high-sided trailer. You've seen it, Dwight. I taught that cow to jump out of that trailer. Why, she'd get halfway home, the old boy that bought her, and she'd jump out of that trailer and come home. You know that cow learned to cut across country and avoid bridges, swim the creeks? And once she got hung up in Canby and waited at the red light until it turned green. And one time, that cow had jumped out of that trailer when it was going too fast, and there she was, spraddle-legged, going down the road on all fours, with smoke coming up from all her hoofs, and the fellow pulled up alongside that fellow and honked his horn and said, Hey, you slow down a little, there's a cow trying to pass. Well, Wendy was really, he loved telling stories like that. I mean, not a bit of it was truth. You ever know anybody like that? You ever know anybody that actually, as they say, would lie when the truth would do better? You know, liars have got to have awful good memories. If you never tell a lie, you don't have to have a good memory. You say, what did I tell you last time? <laughs> we don't need to do that if you don't lie, you don't exaggerate. He said, because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinces or convicts me of sin? Verse 40. And if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. You therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Then they accused him of being demon-possessed. Mr. Dart wrote an article on the subject, and I think preached a sermon about demonizing everything. If you don't believe it, if you're afraid of it, if you want to justify what you're about to do to somebody was his main point. Then you demonize them. That's what the Catholics did to some of those that were actually members of the true Church of God in the Middle Ages. They say, well, you've got a devil, therefore you've got to kill the body to save the soul, right? So that's what they did. In 1 Timothy, the sixth chapter and verse 20, I want to turn to that where the Apostle Paul told Timothy about this whole concept of philosophies truth versus error and lies. O Timothy, he is saying in the final closing moments of this beautiful letter to the young evangelist Timothy, this is in the sixth chapter in verse 20. 1 Timothy 6.20, keep that which is committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Now, the word babbling comes from seed picking. It's actually a Greek word that is spermologos, 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 and it meant a little bird picker, a bird seed picking, nit picking, in other words, a little bird. And it was merely an idiom of that time. So someone who was just going through a lot of nonsensical little things was a bird picker or a seed picker or a nitpicker, or a babbler. And it's a vain babbling by oppositions, and that is contrary, or actually the Greek word here is antithesis, antithesis, 
which is the exact opposite of thesis or proposition. Antithesis, oppositions of science. And the word science means knowledge. That's all it means. Science or knowledge, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Every year we must somehow do the best job we can with people who are basically sincere, who decide they have discovered something we don't know. It's obviously, if we are observing the Passover, when and how we observe it, and they have decided they have discovered that we should be observing it on a different time in a different manner than we are observing it, they now know something we don't know. And so they are desperate to convince us that we should now come to know what they know. And they write in all these papers. And people get all upset. And no matter how many times we wade through it. Now, if you were to read in Leviticus 23, and verse 16, just to go back and read it, and exactly read what the law says. Now, on the morrow, after the Sabbath, you shall count unto you fifty days. You shall count until the morrow, after the seventh Sabbath. What does that tell you? Now, there are those of the school of Sibon 6. Now, think about it. I want you ladies especially to think about this, the elder ladies, everybody in here. Think about this for just a moment. Mr. Dart just had to write a lengthy paper to answer a much lengthier paper on exactly that question. I studied it and began seeing the errors in it exactly like I did from another gentleman that left the worldwide church that has a lot of people believing in his Simon 6 idea of the Pharisees that dates all the way back before the time of Christ that you should not keep the day of Pentecost when the church has kept it and had a big controversy that eventually in 1974 resulted in my father finding that he had in fact made an error and that the church did accept the new truth, that it is obvious if you have not only a starting point but an ending point and you are to count. There is an obvious thing here that ought to occur to all of us. Why did God go to the trouble to say, and you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath? The same word that is used in Exodus 20 in the fourth commandment. Remember, the Sabbath day. Now, if you can make that mean weak, meaning weak, when I say the word weak, sounds weird if you say it about five times in a row. Weak, 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 weak. Sounds like a bird looking for a seed, doesn't it? The word weak, it's a weird word. Looks like a weird word, spelled weird. It's an English sound. I make a sound, and your mind says weak, and that's, I'll see you week from Tuesday. That word is nowhere in the Bible. It isn't in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, there is no word that means a week when it's applied Tuesday to Tuesday. The root of the word weak in English, back to the Ransdawei, back to the Latin, back to the Greek, even to the Septuagint or into the Hebrew, always means a sevening, a sevening, a seventh, a sevening. Not Tuesday to Tuesday from 10 o'clock or Thursday to Thursday or Friday to Friday. The concept of a week, meaning any block of seven days across any period of time, is not found in the Word of God. It isn't there. Now, since God said, this shall be the beginning of months unto you, and he said on the fourteenth day of the first month at even, you shall do thus and such, 
And on the tenth day of the seventh month, that you shall do thus and such. And on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, you, why didn't he say on the sixth day of such and such a month? Why did he say you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath? Is there a person in this room that thinks that there is a definite date that never changes and it's always five and six for the observance of Pentecost? When you have the language, you shall count unto you. Do you know why that was true? Because the month of Abib was a month of green ears, and the high priest that went out and they observed the actual harvest, it could actually fluctuate through the seasons just a little bit. And because the calendar is not perfect, and the solar calendar is not perfect, and even the metonic cycle is not perfect, and there is no such thing, and people get on me about this as, quote, holy time in the sense of the passage of that particular period of time in itself being holy. The closest we come to that is the rotation of the earth every seventh day, which is non-observable through astronomical uh, phenomena, which is called the weekly cycle or the sevening of the Sabbath to the Sabbath. But since God said, you shall count, each year you're going to count, and you may end up on different days according to a certain cycle on the calendar. That should tell any person with even less than a first grade education who is merely able to listen, let alone able to read, that it is not going to be on a fixed date of the calendar. But we have got to help explain that to people every single year. And we'll be doing it next year. And we'll do it the year after that. And we will be patient. And we will try our best to explain it to them as profoundly and thoroughly as we possibly can. And Mr. Dark, by the way, wrote a beautiful answer to it that I hope and pray will really uh, help the individuals who are beginning to believe that to see and to once again recapture what they once had, which is the truth. The truth which makes you free. He says, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. So little things sometimes, which are called vain, Vain seed picking, picking up an idea, I know something you don't know. It is knowledge, or is it? No, it's falsely called knowledge, and sometimes cause people to leave God's true church. Now, how many kinds of bondage are they? There's the slavery of ignorance, the bondage of superstition. All societies, if you look back, not that many years, and a matter of fact, some of you probably are a little bit superstitious. Are there people here who will deliberately walk around a ladder? Are there people here who might say it will knock on wood, or people here who throw salt over their shoulder, or people here who won't step on a crack lest you break your mother's back, or people here who never step on an ant if they can avoid it, like Schweitzer down in Africa that wouldn't kill a thing, even a flea if it bit him? Are there people here who believe that breaking a mirror will give you seven years bad luck, or the people here that worry about the full moon or Friday the 13th? There are people who still have certain superstitions in the back of their mind. What about the shackles of fear? What about a child who is not properly reared, loved, nurtured, and cared for by parents who learns to fear the dark, learns to fear and be terror of the, in terror of the heavy tread of his own father, because his father is a beater or a molester? What about those who are in the shackles of absolute immobility because of fear? They have told stories about people in aircraft that are in the process of burning and a person is buckled into their seat, and they're just sitting there looking straight ahead like this, and they all they had to do was unbuckle the seat belt and get up and run for the exit, and they didn't. Because once they were in that seat, they knew they were being cared for, and they were in the airplane. 
And that magazine they saw when they took off and everything was fine is still there in front of them. And they sat there absolutely immobile and petrified and burnt to death. Instead of getting up and running. Others who have escaped have told those stories of people who were petrified, immobile because of fear. The truth shall make you free. And you can be free from fear. You can be free from the slavery of stupidity and ignorance and the bondage of superstition and the shackles of fear and the immobility of doubt. The truth of God's Word is exactly like viewing everything you do through a looking glass. Whether you're deciding to buy Washington apples and decide to ask whether or not, well, have these got that wax on them? Well, you see, the reason they have the wax on them to make them look like a beautiful, shiny apple. Yeah, but the trouble is that the wax has also sealed in some of the pesticides, and the wax is not good for you itself, and if they sprayed pesticides on it when it was a growing apple on the tree, there is a powerful chemical compound that's actually sunken into the apple. It may not be that good for you. So you need to find out where they're grown and what they have on them. Now, I'm not suggesting that people go and make a religion out of whether or not wafer-thin saltine crackers have got lard. But if you read lard on the label, should you go ahead and eat them? I mean, there are people that will just go down the line in a cafeteria and decide, I'll have the beans and I can actually see the pork in there. Just shove the pork aside, not me. I won't do that. That doesn't make me righteous. It just makes me worry about my health. And I agree with people who say, well, I'll tell you, there are people sitting in church that have been lusting and that have been doing this and that and the other thing that are worse sinners than somebody taking that pork. I agree with that. I agree with that if you want to categorize sin. But I don't agree that all eight things that I think are going to hurt my health when I've only got so many prime years left in my life and I'm 62 and I'd like to be around up here ramping and railing you people as long as I possibly can. So, I want to eat the things no matter what President Bush says. Can you imagine the broccoli growers must have really been upset? There must have been a real flap over the fact that he said, I'm not going to eat broccoli. I'm the President of the United States and nobody's going to make me eat broccoli. I bet the broccoli growers were really upset with him and probably a lot of them were, were hurt, you know, I mean, economically because of what he said. Well, I've understood that cabbages and broccoli and cauliflower are cancer fighters. And the beta carotene is good. We're going to get a, we used to have one. We don't anymore. I guess we gave it to somebody. But anyway, we're going to get us another one of these juicers. And if I turn yellow in the next few days, hold up palm hand of bright yellow, you know I've been drinking carrot juice. But uh, I know that that is good for you. My wife takes Prevention Magazine. And by and large, I mean, there's some ideas in prevention I'm sure are not good. But most of them are good. Good ideas. And health and diet and exercise. The truth of God can be like glasses that help you. Now, you, I can go over here and see people coming to this restaurant and it smells like a garbage can sometimes outside of it. When I first walk in it, and I'm not putting down the restaurant, it's a fairly good restaurant. I've had a lot of nice steaks right over here at Coffee Atlantic. But because they have these, uh, this fish bait that people eat, I can't even think of the name, crawdads and also shrimp and uh, freshwater crawdads and stuff, and they'll just, these people, they'll have crabs. And you'll hear them crack. And they'll come out with just a ghastly mess of these claws from this carrion-eating bottom dweller, slipping along, you know, eating dead things, and so on. And they're cracking it and pulling it out of there and eating that stuff. And I'm looking at these people with just heaps of broken crabs' bodies. And I'm smelling this stuff. And it smells like something that was under the garbage can. And they're putting it in their mouth. They go like this, I guess. 
and hold her nose, her stomach will never know the difference, but it's absolutely awful. My wife and I were in a restaurant one time and heard this sound. You know, and I looked over there and heard it smelled this awful odor. It was a guy with a little two-pronged fork that had picked a huge slimy snail out of a shell about that big. He had a steaming bunch of shells, and he picked a slimy snail out there and let that thing slide down his gullet. And I'm like, ah! I mean, I know the truth, and the truth happens to be glasses that I'm wearing when I'm going down the line with my wife with a shopping cart, or if I'm looking at the menu in a restaurant. It's gotten to where hors d'oeuvres, you can forget the horses' dubers, I call them, part of the menu, the hors d'oeuvres, you know, the before the daily meal. And you can forget it, because almost everything on the hors d'oeuvres is either pig or crab. I mean, it's either seafood or pork. And so on a rare occasion, you'll find something. I know we were upset. We just said it facetiously. One of our favorite restaurants in Pasadena for years, we'd go in there and we would order what we thought was a wonderful thing, and it was a, uh, a chicken wing or a whatever it was. Somebody went in there and asked one time and found out that they had minced up some pork and stuffed it in the top in the skin of that little chicken drumstick, and then retied it. Now, you've got to go to a lot of work to do that. Kill a pig, mince it up, take the chicken, peel the skin back, put the minced pork in there, take the skin, sew it together, fry the dumb-looking thing, and then pass it off as a chicken drumstick. And it's got pork in it. And we, we were sort of upset. We were more upset at the time, I think, with the restaurant than anything else. But people will go to great lengths to make sure that you and I get pork in us if, if they can. One time I had a waitress almost chew me out. What do you think that mignon on there means? I said, you got, you mean to say you got bacon wrapped around that filet mignon? That's what the mignon means. Well, I asked a Frenchman, he didn't think it's what it meant. What does it mean, R.D.? Ron knows, but he, he used to take French. But I think it just means a little, you know, filet. But whatever. She let me know. She was from uh, Shreveport, I think. She let me know. I was on a baptizing tour. She said, what do you think the Philip Mignon means? It means pork. I didn't know that. Because I had never had in my life. I'd eaten filet mignon in California for 25 years. I had never in my life seen a filet wrapped in bacon. I didn't know they did things like that. But they do. But over here, it's hard to get one that isn't wrapped in bacon. You've got to ask them to take the bacon off before they cook it, and even then trim around the outside, lest you taste that junk that is in there, and just eat the heart of the meat. So these glasses can help you with regard to avoiding harmful substances and filthy habits. If you know the truth, you know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you know you don't want to defile it. If you know the truth, you know that you ought to have a free, healthy, wholesome, unpolluted mind. Now, my mind is utterly empty when it comes to sitcoms and who those people are. I don't know who they are, and frankly, I'm like George Bush when it comes to broccoli. I don't care. I don't care who they are. And every morning when they're interviewing a star, you know, I turn it off so fast where I get up in disgust and go to my room and turn on my computer. But I will not watch what I call the morning worship hour. I'm not interested in the tough time that stars have on location leaving the kids that, well, two of them from their third husband and one of them from their fourth husband and so on behind. I'm not interested at all. To me, some people's brains are exactly like some old houses I've seen out in New Mexico in an Indian reservation where I saw with amazement a, two, a couple of abandoned automobiles, two or three old abandoned washing machines and refrigerators, junk and old springs and rotten rusted this and that, tin cans, bottles, trash, and out of a hovel, a TV antenna protruded. And these people liked their junk. 
And when they drove in around through that junk, it was familiar junk because they said, that is my junk. I remember that old car. And here were a couple of them going to town one time in Gallup, New Mexico. Never forget it. I was only 16. My dad and mom, brother and I were driving along the road, and here was a whole carload of Indians in an ancient old car that didn't even have an engine. I mean, the hood was gone and everything, but the car was just a, a wagon. And it was tied by a huge rope to another old car like it, and absolutely there must have been a dozen or more of them in these two cars going to town. And it was because of poverty, I know that, and because of ignorance, and I'm not putting them down because they were Indians, but I don't care whether you're Indian or what you are, you don't need to live in filth. Because clean is free. Clean is free. You can be clean and it doesn't cost anything. You know, you can wash your clothes in the lake if you have to. You can stand in the rain if you have to. You can probably go into a public restaurant, some, a restroom somewhere in the village station and find out they got soap in it. And you can be clean. So I look at what Jesus said. And when I understand, if you can just go through a quick litany with me and we'll go to one, one uh, quick scripture to conclude. The truth about creation, the truth about God and his family, the truth about Jesus Christ, who and what he was before his human birth and who and what he is today and what he's been doing and what he does do on a daily basis. How to worship God, the plan of salvation. And you can answer the question, are you in a saved condition? Have you been saved? Do you possess saving knowledge? Do you know the truth about how to date, how to choose a mate? How to make a judgment call on human relations, about marriage, about child rearing, when and how to punish, how to do so in love and mercy, and with absolute unvarying consistency, where mom doesn't say no one time, and do I have to whip you, and all this stuff, but just says no once, and then punishes, and the child learns, like any chimpanzee, or any parrot, or any little chihuahua, the meaning of the sound that comes out of your mouth that says, no. It's a simple word. One syllable, no. It's amazing the mileage you can get out of that word with a kid if you just teach them because they're smarter than dogs. And because of these glasses, and because of what it says in the word of God, a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame. And you shall spank your child with a switch. It doesn't say beat your child with a rod. It says, and a rod is actually a shoot of a willow or an olive tree. And he will not die, because it's talking about loving, judicious punishment. Well, I could get off on that subject for the next two hours, and I won't. But if you know the truth about honesty, integrity, and industry, and thrift in business, what kind of an employee are you? The truth about prophecy. I well remember many times years ago, T.H. Tietens, who wrote the book The New Germany and the Old Nazis, and the other book called Germany Plots of the Kremlin, came out to Ambassador College to a rousing ovation, took the podium, stood up there, big... Heavy-set German fellow, been living in this country for several years, and written all these books warning about the Nazis going underground. He stood up there in his thick German accent. He said, Why should I be talking to you people at Ambassador College? You already know the truth. Never forget that. Now, in his, in his case, he was talking about we knew the truth about Nazism and that it was going to grow again out of the ashes of defeat and that Germany was going to rise and become a powerful gigantic power block in the world and was dangerous to the future of the United States. And we knew that truth. When you know the truth about prophecy, when you know the truth about world affairs, the struggle in this world is for the control of men's minds. What do you think this election is all about? 
How much truth do you think you're going to hear from the professional politician? Sure, I've got reservations about Ross Perot. Ross Perot's not God. He's not Christ. He might not even be a good Christian. I don't know. I know already he's stuck his foot in it by making fun of a man's name, which is terrible politics. But he's direct, and he's fresh, and he's tough. And when the Iranians have got some of his people, he goes and gets them. And if Ross Perot had been president, we probably might have gotten that ship back the North Koreans took from us. And it's still over there. But on the other hand, Ross Perot was against the Gulf War. So I don't know what to make of the man. But it may be refreshing to listen to what he's got to say. I don't know. But don't think he's going to save America or turn the country around because God says, Pray not for this people for their good, for I will not hear you, says the Eternal, because our people are headed toward the Great Tribulation. To conclude, I want to go to Psalm 85 right quickly. The 85th Psalm. Here is a very beautiful psalm that is largely ignored, but it certainly is appropriate to what we're talking about today. O Eternal, you have been favorable unto your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. It's like a prayer after the deliverance and the beginning of the kingdom of God and the regathering of Israel. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned yourself from the fierceness of your anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? From those words come that old, old Pentecostal kind of a song, revive us again. That your people may rejoice in thee. Show us your mercy, O Eternal, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what the Eternal, the Lord, will speak. And this is El and Yahweh. El, Hebrew El, you can look at that and see what the original meaning of it is. And the Yahweh, El the Yahweh, will speak. For he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is near to them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Actually, the word met and the word kissed are the identical words. They're the same words. It means they have, they have lovingly embraced each other. Mercy and truth, personifying them, have embraced at that time. Righteousness and peace for all eternity have embraced each other. Justice, fairness, mercy, goodness, happiness, long life, prosperity, joy for all eternity, says this prophecy, will finally come when Christ stands on this earth. Truth will spring out of the earth. There won't be any more lies. There won't be any more rotten Satan who is the father of all liars. There will be no more prejudice, no bias. No superstition, no greed, no jealousy, no resentment, no racism. None of these prejudices that are so rotten that corrupt human beings. Spring, truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yea, the eternal shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him, and shall set us in the way of his steps. Let the truth of God not be taken for granted. Do not treat like something cheap, like pearls to be cast before swine, 
or something of no account what you know because you know what has been concealed from the greatest minds that have ever lived. Kant, Epictetus, Plato, Constantine, Socrates, and in more modern times, Jefferson, James, Washington, Lincoln, and George Bush. You know more than they do. Rejoice in the truth of God, because it shall set you free.